This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. This episode will contain sexual abuse towards men, so please consider this before listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Before we start, I'd like to remind you of By Design Crafts. They make amazing customized goodies that are great for personalized gifts. Go and check them out on Facebook. I will post the link in the show notes. Or you can email them at bydesigncraftssa at gmail.com. And remember, if you tell them Palsy or Decoding Cult sent you, you will get a 5% discount. To be a person is to be a mask. And you never know who you're talking to behind the mask. The real person is somewhere inside that mask. You have to stand naked in front of God as He's made you in your body of light. The master only represents God on the earth. And if you can't stand naked in front of your master, you can't stand naked in front of your God. Know that. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Paul D. This week, we are looking at the Buddha Field, Part 2. In this episode, we will be looking at the movement of the cult, where things really started to change, and the terrible secrets that came to light. In the last episode, we left off after the knowing session. At this time, the cult was still pretty benign. Although the leader was becoming more egotistical, most of the followers were living a happy, clean life. A family member of one of the newer disciples became worried when they joined the group, and the family hired a private investigator to look into the group. The investigator infiltrated one of the open satsang and then reported back to the family that it was just a well-meaning group. He didn't think it would be harmful in any way. Michel had decided that the disciples all needed new names. He said that this was to help them move beyond their past, and to see themselves in a new way. He would also tell people to, quote, drop their mind, end quote, which basically meant that they needed to fall in line with his way of thinking. Being, quote, in the mind was a bad thing. Now, if you've been following the podcast for a while, you know by now that this is a tactic used to strip followers of their identity and critical thinking, and then solidify them more into the group. But to those disciples in Buddhafield, this was a new beginning in their eyes. Furthermore, 
He also requested that his disciples detach from people outside of the group, including their families. One of the followers' father was on his deathbed, and she wasn't even allowed to go to say goodbye, and he told her it was in order to break her bond with her dad. Watching her tell her story is heartbreaking. As we know, this too is another way of gaining control over followers by cutting them from external influences. Before we carry on, I just want to briefly talk to you about the Cult Awareness Network. This organization was created in 1978, during the aftermath of the Jonestown Massacre of the People's Temple. They provided information on groups that they considered to be cults, and also assisted in kidnapping and deprogramming cult members on behalf of their concerned families. Rick Allen Ross is a cult specialist and deprogrammer who worked with this group to assist in helping families get their loved ones out from under narcissistic leaders. He also started the Cult Education Institute and has a website of the same name, where he has loads of information and articles on cults, both past and present. The Cult Awareness Network was very prevalent in the 80s and early 90s, as there were many groups that had popped up around this time. Now, the disciples within the group did not believe that they were in a cult. Michelle would even tell them that they were anti-cult. In 1991, a man outside of the group fell in love with one of the disciples, a strikingly beautiful blonde woman. He started stalking her and decided that the only way that he could have her was to destroy the group. He then went to the Cult Awareness Network, saying that she was being held with the group against her will. Michel became aware of this, and things started to turn. He was no longer focused on the knowing and enlightenment, but more focused on not being exposed as a cult. He told his followers that he could no longer do his work in that environment, and that they needed to leave. In the middle of the night, he tossed three of his closest followers to pack up quickly, and they left, leaving behind all of the other people without a proper explanation. Those who were left behind were devastated when they realized that he had gone. They made him a video thanking him for what he had taught them, and told him how much they missed him, one even saying, quote, My heart is yours, my lord, end quote. Michel and his followers moved frequently, trying to find a place which he deemed safe. He convinced his followers that every messianic figure that had ever come forward had been killed because of their ideas, and they noticed that he had become more and more paranoid. According to Google, quote, Austin is the state capital of Texas, an inland city bordering the Hill Country region. Home to the University of Texas flagship campus, Austin is known for its eclectic live music scene centered around country, blues, and rock. Its many parks and lakes are popular for hiking, biking, swimming, and boating. South of the city, Formula One Circuit of the Americas Raceway has hosted the United States Grand Prix, end quote. It is here, after six months on the road, where Michel decided that they would plant new roots. One of his disciples bought him a house, and he changed his name to Andreas. I'll be referring to him as Andreas from this point forward. The name change was to ensure that he could not be found. Once he had settled in Austin, and deemed it safe, he reached out to those who he had left behind to come to him. 
A few at a time, the disciples would leave LA to join them in Texas. Little by little, they started to recruit new members into the movement through yoga classes. The followers were also taught ballet by him, and he actively looked for new members who loved to dance. Michelle, however, didn't let many people get close to him, especially the newer recruits, as he was still paranoid that people were out to get him. In the book The Buddha Field, The Chronicles of a Spiritual Adventurous by Giselle Coy, she describes how secret of the group was, especially around their master. She had to jump through hoops and meet so many followers first before she even had the opportunity to meet Andreas. He also continued with his acting classes and cleansing sessions. The group worked hard to make Michelle's home a haven. The garage was converted into a fitness studio, complete with a ballet bar against the wall. The front yard had a beautifully manicured lawn with trees and flowers neatly growing in well-tended flower beds. They turned the backyard into a beautiful oasis. In the middle of the garden was a small pond with goldfish, lily pads, and lotus flowers. A waterfall poured into the pond upon which was a bronze statue of a flute-playing Krishna. There were also other statues from a variety of faiths, including Buddha, Jesus, and angels dotted across the garden. They also made an organic vegetable garden, with two garden beds, and they had fruit trees. They even made an aviary in the backyard, complete with a small pond, and it housed a wallaby, peacocks, swans, bunnies, and other birds, including a chicken coop. To them, this was a refuge, and they felt safe there. They had also fallen off of the Cult Awareness Network's radar, but this did not make Andreas feel less paranoid. In fact, Giselle describes how, when she was first tasked for service to Michelle, she had to park her car at a shopping mall, then share a car with four other people to a public pool. They then walked through the woods and entered through the backyard to come to the house, and even at this point, they were never actually allowed in the house. Between 28 February and 19 April 1993, the siege happened in Waco, Texas, between the government and the Branch Davidians. This was only about 160 kilometers from where the Buddhafield disciples had settled. Upon seeing this, Andreas's paranoia grew. The followers were also afraid, but they were afraid for their master and had a deep sense that they needed to protect him, drawing parallels between their leader and those who had been persecuted for their beliefs. During their classes, the disciples would practice what they needed to do and say if they were ever approached by the FBI. They were taught to tell any interrogators that they did not know who he was. They were also not allowed to share any information or even the name of their group. In the book that I mentioned before, Giselle lays out just how secretive it was. No one did talk about their wonderful master. They did this out of fear that he would be killed just like the messianic figures before him, and they wanted to protect him from that ever happening. Newcomers were not even allowed to tell their families about the group or the master, if they were lucky enough to get to meet the master, that is. Older members of the group would send postcards to their families from countries all over the world to ensure that their families did not know where they were. They would do this by having people who they knew were going abroad bring them back blank postcards and random gifts, 
which they would then send on to their families. At one point, there was a rat infestation in the aviary. Andreas tasked his followers to kill them. Armed with gardening equipment like shovels, they set about killing the rats. Andreas egged them on, almost like he was turning them into a small army that would kill for him. He was demanding more and more devotion to him from his followers. In 1997, Andreas had one of his followers purchase a piece of land and then tasked his disciples to build him a theatre there. They all put in many hours of hard labour to fulfil his dream. At times he would come out to inspect the progress, and when he found something that he didn't like, he would have them tear it down and start all over again. He would then berate them because of the delay, stating that he would have done it way faster, and when the followers would be devastated because they felt like they were disappointing him, he would turn around and be kind and say, quote, It doesn't matter how long it takes, what I care about is you awakening through this process, end quote. And then he'd turn around and continue shouting at them about the delay. When I listened to this, I thought either this guy has a bit of a personality disorder or he's totally gaslighting. Considering the subject that we are talking about, I'm leaning towards gaslighting. When the theatre had been completed, Andrea started to choreograph shows. They spent an entire year on one show. The disciples would rehearse for hours every day. They would even have to leave work early to ensure that they made it on time. Andreas was very hard on his disciples during rehearsal. They had fabric flown in to create fantastic costumes and built elaborate sets for the show. All of the disciples were involved, from the cast to making costumes and everything else. Then, after a whole year of practice and preparation, they would put on a show, only once, for themselves. Can you imagine putting in all of that work just for one person to feel adored by his followers? He also became much more controlling over his followers. Not only did they need to follow all of his rules and drop everything for any one of his whims, but now they also needed to ask him permission for everything. One follower bought a television, which, as we know, was a no-no, and when Andreas found out about this, he was so upset because the follower had supposedly gone behind his back to purchase it without his permission. Another follower got a puppy. He made her return it, as having a personal pet was not acceptable to him. It sounds to me like he didn't want them to have anything that would take away any affection or devotion from him. In her book, Giselle refers to a term that they would use called getting guidance, which basically meant that you had to ask Andreas for permission for anything and everything. As we know, this is a form of thought control, where the leader takes away your decisions and thus breaking down your critical thought. In the Holy Hell documentary, one of the ex-members stated, quote, I mean, it was kind of nice when it first started out. It wasn't all about adoring him. It was about achieving some kind of spiritual growth for yourself, not licking his feet, end quote. In 1999, Andreas wrote a song called Femme Fatale, and Will helped him make a music video for it. Some of the lyrics are, quote, If you incarnated in a woman's body, 
You can be a guppy, or you can be la femme fatale. Every man is a possible catch, end quote. Andreas told his disciples that this song was about the negative effects that sex had on spirituality. This is in line with his teachings about the orgasm being a little death, as I discussed in the previous episode. But this message was also a bit different. Will described it as, quote, a satire about a woman being too sexual, end quote. He very much discouraged anyone from having relationships. In my opinion, this was to ensure that people wouldn't have the opportunity to love someone else more than they loved him. We saw this in Heaven's Gate as well. According to Applied Behavior Analysis Programs, there are 10 common characteristics of narcissistic personalities. 1. Monopoly on conversation. 2. Flaunting rules or social conventions. 3. Fixation with appearance. 4. Unreasonable expectations. 5. Disregard for other people. 6. Praise, praise and more praise. 7. It's everyone else's fault. 8. The fear of abandonment. 9. The narcissist lives in a fantasy. And 10. There are always strings attached. From this, one can see that he already displayed a few of these traits. I also think that he may have had women around to adore him, but it was the beautiful men that he really wanted. One of the ex-members described how he had found out that Andreas had discouraged women from dating him. It was not all doom and gloom, however. They would host mock pageants and celebrate together, well, their version of celebrate. One Christmas, Andreas held a kind of banquet. All of the followers attended, and they were dressed to the nines. But instead of the happy chatter, there was a quiet whispering with many sitting with their eyes closed in meditation, while everyone waited for their festivities to begin. They were then each given a gift, which was a quote from their master. Andreas entered the room and sat at the head table. One of his followers stood up and put a bib around his neck, and then they all ate organic food in silence. After this, a mic was passed around and everyone had to read the quote that they had received as a gift. Following this, Andreas finally spoke to them. He started with meditation, then spoke about service, and even told jokes. He then left the room with four of his closest male attendants. When he re-entered the room, he had changed clothes and performed a few ballroom-style dances with one of his disciples. Then, everyone started to dance. At one point during the festivities, Andreas approached one of the disciples and performed Shakti on them. They then all sat down to meditate, and then the evening ended. As in some of these groups, there were conflicting teachings. On the one hand, they were told that they were not this body, and that they needed to transcend all of that stuff. But, on the other hand, he demanded that they stayed fit and beautiful. He would maintain his body, and started wearing makeup like eyeliner and mascara. He even had fake eyelashes. He went as far as getting some of his disciples to get plastic surgery that he wanted. Then he would see what it looked like before he got it himself. I can't say that I'm surprised that he started having plastic surgery. If you think about it, even if he had moved to the US when he was 18 years old, by the late 1990s, early 2000s, he would have already been in his late 50s. And I think 
being around these beautiful young people looking up to him, drove him to keep himself looking young. Even though this went against his teachings, no one actually ever questioned him on it. At this point, the members must have suffered from cognitive dissonance. This happens when a person's behaviours and beliefs do not align, which brings about mental discomfort, and they then try to rationalise it to themselves to make it easier to accept. This point of the story is where it starts to get very dark. Up to this point, in my opinion, I could easily say that he was mostly in this for power. I don't 100% think it was for money. I mean, the followers did pay for most things, and he got money from the acting classes and cleansings, but I mostly think it was for power. After all, looking at the total devotion that he craved, that makes sense to me. But then what about sex? Isn't that one of the three? Well, that'll become clear very soon. You want to have kids? Yeah. One of Andreas's close followers, Vera, had become pregnant. She told Andreas about the pregnancy, and he demanded that she get an abortion. He told her that she was not welcome in his community if she had the baby. She was so completely devoted to him that she ended up having the abortion. Later, she was in a relationship with another member who she cared for very much and had this time purposefully fell pregnant in the hopes that Andreas would approve of it this time. He did not. He convinced her partner to get her to have an abortion or else he would be kicked out of the group. Again, Vera gave in and had another abortion. And if it had happened to her, I'm quite sure it happened to other female members too. Over the years, there were some people who would leave the group. These followers would be painted as the enemy. The group would be told that these people were, quote, in their minds, end quote, which was very bad to them. One was even said to have turned to prostitution. He told his followers that if they left him, bad things would happen to them on the outside. Some would even be told that if they left, they would be dead within a year. He would say things like, quote, you only have one opportunity to be with me, only once in a lifetime, end quote. Only by staying with him would they be protected under his grace. Here we can see some more of the traits used in cults, where everyone outside of the cult is evil and staying is safer for them. Creating an outside enemy solidifies the us versus them theory which keep members in the group. He had the group start producing movies in which he alone was the saviour. They depicted apocalyptic scenes where Andreas would then come like a shining light and save them from things of the evil world. More and more he placed the focus on himself as the divine. In 2006, one of the long-time members wrote an email and sent it to the group. In this email, he started to share why many members especially longer-serving members, had left the group. In it, he spoke about physical, mental, and sexual abuse that had been inflicted by Andreas for years. The followers were in complete shock. Many did not want to believe it, and Andreas told his people not to read it as it was full of lies. Many of his followers actually came to his defense, but a divide was being created between those who believed the stories 
and those who didn't. They tried to carry on as normal, but things were just not the same. People would argue during meditation sessions, and one day, while Andreas was holding a cleansing session with one of his disciples, another man came in and started throwing things around and breaking them, all the while screaming at Andreas to stop his cleansing sessions and stop ruining people's lives, even threatening legal action. Then, the story started to come out. It all started during his one-on-one cleansing session with a few of his male followers. What you need to remember is that these were hypnotherapy sessions, where the disciple would basically tell Andreas everything about themselves, the good, the bad, and the dark. He knew each of them so well, and also used this to break down his disciples' defenses. The next bit is very hard to hear, and may be very triggering, so please consider it before listening, or just fast forward over this bit if it's too much. After time spent in these cleansing sessions, he would start speaking to these young men about their sexual fantasies. If any of them would mention a female, he would say things like, no, no, think of a guy. He would ask some of the men for a kiss. Others would be more subtle, like undressing in front of him and feeling comfortable with it. Then he would break down yet another barrier by closing the space between himself and the disciple while they were naked, bowing before him and completely vulnerable, and even have them pleasure themselves in front of him. In some cleansing sessions, he would even have pornography playing in the background with no sound. Systematically, he wore them down until he started having sex with each of them, even though they didn't want it, and some of them were even straight. Not that it matters either way, because what he did was fucking wrong. Some guys would just lay there, and others would say that they didn't want it. To those who resisted, he would use his meditation techniques, finding the, quote, root of the issue that was holding them back, because it couldn't be him all the while abusing them. He would say things like, quote, that moral stuff that's been put in your head, it's not your voice. You need to get what is authentic, because you're carrying so much programming there, end quote. He would also tell some of them that what he was doing was for them, that his master had brought him close in the same way. He told each of them that they were very special, and they kept it secret for years. The worst thing, by the time that he was done, they would thank him and then still pay the $50 for their cleansing session. As more and more similar stories started to emerge, the majority of the followers could not ignore the facts any longer. They were devastated. They felt betrayed. Some of these disciples had been with him for over 20 years. Other stories started to emerge of him asking followers to feign illness so that he could miraculously cure them. He had even asked Vera to fake having cancer for this purpose. When confronted with this information by his followers, he would flatly deny it, saying that these were all untrue and that he would never do that. Within a week, many of the followers left. But the thing is, because it was so siloed, Some followers still had no idea what had happened. Andreas once again packed a bag and gathered a few of his disciples and fled in the middle of the night. This time, to the coastal town of Corpus Christi. 
He did send a video to his followers in Austin, but most felt this to be so strange that they completely rejected it and left in the middle of it. Those that were with him became more secretive, but overall, he was losing control over his flock. I think it was out of pure desperation, but he announced another knowing session. Keep in mind that he hadn't held one since they were in Los Angeles. The newer followers had the most amazing transcendental experience, but some of the older followers that were finally chosen said that it felt so disconnected. In my opinion, I think that those who were still totally in had a very different experience to those who had one foot out of the door. I think the spell was broken. He had even reached the point where he asked loyal followers to have those who were spreading these stories taken out or destroyed. This message burst even more illusions for some, but others still remained true to him. Those close to Andreas urged him to relocate and stop practicing under the threat of litigation coming from ex-members. They made arrangements and moved him to Oahu in Hawaii. He even changed his name again, this time to Reiji, which apparently means God King. Some of his followers went with him. Some would join every now and again for service. Many left. Even though he had promised to stop what he was doing, he proceeded to gain a whole new batch of followers through his meditation classes. One of the ex-members was set to go to Hawaii to give a talk. This was the same member who had crashed his cleansing session and broke furniture. Andreas was so afraid of this man that they even considered hiring a hitman to take him out, but hired a bodyguard instead. By 2007, the beautiful oasis that had been created at the house in Texas was completely run down. Those who had left Buddha Field slowly started to put their lives back together again. To most of them, it felt like a huge loss, like they had lost their family. They likened it to a death. Many of them were lost and even angry. Can you imagine having given so many years of your life to a person that was basically manipulating and abusing you, and then having to start from scratch? The ex-members slowly started to reconnect with people who they had disconnected from. Will Allen even went on to make the documentary Holy Hull in 2016. The thing is, even though these members had been able to leave and move on in their own way, he is still practicing his teachings in Hawaii. I truly hope that he is not abusing those members as well, but I'm not so sure. While making the documentary, Will approached Andreas on the beach. He asked him, quote, Are you being a good boy? End quote. To which he replied laughingly, quote, No, I do not know what that is. End quote. Will later asked, Are you being your best boy? To which Andreas replied, quote, I'm just being. End quote. It makes me sad to think that despite everything, he still hasn't changed his ways. I just hope that those who are still following him aren't being abused and that they will find a way out. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It'll go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com.
We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cult which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go to check out By Design Crafts SA and if you order, tell them I sent you for a 5% discount. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.